So we'll be in Numbers 5, starting in verse number 12 today, continuing our series on using the law lawfully, going off of the instruction that Paul gave to Timothy, saying that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. And he's speaking to Timothy, who is uh, pastoring a Gentile church in Ephesus. And so we want, as Gentiles, we want to understand what Paul was saying there. How can we use the law lawfully and thus the law be good for us as Gentiles and Gentile believers? So that's what we're studying, going through the Sefer HaMitzvot. And today we're going to look at the law of jealousies. It's an interesting law that gets a, a lot of comments on social media when skeptics start talking about crazy things in the Bible that they think are, are wrong. So Numbers 5, verses 12 all the way down through 31 is where we find the law of jealousies. This is a law that was written for a husband who suspects without proof that his wife is guilty of adultery. And uh, it's a law written to discourage him from bringing charges of adultery against her. That's not the way most people think of it when they first read it, but that's what it's actually doing in this passage. It's, it's a law to discourage an unjustly jealous husband from bringing charges of adultery against his wife. So let's, let's look at it. We'll start verse 12 and we'll read the whole thing. Speak unto the... Oh, I don't know. They were up extremely late last night, so... I don't know if he'll make it or not. I'm sorry. That's no problem. All right. Numbers 5, verses 12 down through 31. Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, If any man's wife go aside, and commit a trespass against him, and a man lie with her carnally, and it be hid from the eyes of her husband, and be kept close, and she be defiled, and there be no witness against her, neither she be taken with the manner. And the spirit of jealousy come upon him, and he be jealous of his wife, and she be defiled. Or if the spirit of jealousy come upon him, and he be jealous of his wife, and she be not defiled. Then shall the man bring his wife unto the priest, and he shall bring her offering for her, the tenth part of an ephah of barley meal. He shall pour no oil upon it, nor put frankincense thereon, for it is an offering of jealousy, an offering of memorial, bringing iniquity to remembrance. And the priest shall bring her near, and set her before the Lord. And the priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel, and of the dust that is in the floor of the tabernacle the priest shall take and put it in the water. And the priest shall set the woman before the Lord, and uncover the woman's head, and put the offering of memorial in her hands, which is the jealousy offering. And the priest shall have in his hand the bitter water that causeth the curse, and the priest shall charge her by an oath, and say unto the woman, If no man have lain with thee, and if thou hast not gone aside unto, gone aside to uncleanness with another, instead of thy husband, be thou free from this bitter water that causeth the curse. But if thou hast gone aside to another, instead of thy husband, and if thou be defiled, and some man have lain with thee, beside thine husband, then the priest shall charge the woman with an oath of cursing, and the priest shall say unto the woman, The Lord make thee a curse and an oath among thy people, when the Lord doth make thy thigh to rot and thy belly to swell. 
And this water that causeth the curse shall go into thy bowels to make thy belly to swell and thy thigh to rot. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. And the priest shall write these curses in a book, and he shall blot them out with the bitter water. And he shall cause the woman to drink the bitter water that causeth the curse. And the water that causeth the curse shall enter into her and become bitter. Then the priest shall take the jealousy offering out of the woman's hand, and shall wave the offering before the Lord and offer it upon the altar. And the priest shall take an handful of the offering, even the memorial thereof, and burn it upon the altar, and afterwards shall cause the woman to drink the water. And when he hath made her to drink the water, then it shall come to pass, that if she be defiled, and have done trespass against her husband, that the water that causeth the curse shall enter into her, and become bitter, and her belly shall swell, and her thigh shall rot. And the woman shall be a curse among her people. And if the woman be not defiled, but be clean, then she shall be free, and shall conceive seed. This is the law of jealousies, when a wife goeth aside to another instead of her husband, and is defiled, or when the spirit of jealousy cometh upon him, and he be jealous over his wife, and shall set the woman before the Lord, and the priest shall execute upon her all this law. Then shall the man be guiltless from iniquity, and his woman shall bear her iniquity, or and this woman shall bear her iniquity. All right, so this is the law of jealousies. We can see it's called that in verse number 29. And basically, a quick summation, if a husband suspects his wife of adultery, but he has no evidence, there's no witnesses, she's not been caught in the act, there's no evidence. It's just a suspicion that he has that his wife has been unfaithful to him with this other man, and this is causing a conflict in the home. So this is the solution that God provided for the husband. He's to bring the wife to the priest, explain the situation to the priest. The priest sprinkles a little bit of dust from the floor into a cup of water and makes the woman drink the water. If the wife was guilty of adultery, then this harmless cup of water with a little bit of dust in it would make her belly to swell and her thigh to rot. In other words, it would have to be a miracle for her belly to swell and her thigh to rot. If this did not happen, then the wife was declared to be innocent of adultery. That's basically what's all is in here. It's, it's just, he takes the wife to the, to the priest, he makes her drink a little bit of water, and if she's guilty, a miracle is going to take place, and she's going to become you know, very ill. Her belly will swell up, uh, and then her thigh is going to rot out uh, because of, of her sin. So there's a, there's a lot of people that look at this and say, this is just barbaric, that God would uh, have this type of a test for women uh, that are suspected of adultery. And you know, it's, it's, this is just really ridiculous of God to do this. And, telling the, the priest to give the woman this potion that's going to make her get sick, and if she doesn't get sick, then she's innocent. They look at it all from, from more of a, a witch trial type of uh, thing, like the, the witch trials that they had in, uh, in Massachusetts back in the Salem witch trials. Uh, that type of a mentality is what they approach this with. But really, when you look at it, God's asking this woman to drink something completely harmless. It's a cup of, of holy water, so it's not just, he didn't just go pull water out of the stream. This is water that has been purified. This is water that is known to be, to be clean. It's water that the, uh, from the source, same source that the priests are going to be drinking. 
So this is clean water that he gives her to drink. He takes a little bit of dust out of the tabernacle. Now the tabernacle was a very clean place because no one could go into the tabernacle <coughs> with dirty garments on. They had, to, they had to clean their garments before they came into the presence of the Lord. And we see that in other passages of Scripture. So it's a very clean place. Uh, the, the priests were told to, to bathe frequently. Uh, so they didn't pollute the tabernacle. It's a very clean place. So he's to find a bit of dust somewhere in the floor of the tabernacle, pick up that bit of dust from a very clean place, and sprinkle that into this very clean water, and then give it to the woman to drink. And if by some chance... She drank that, and her belly swell, came swollen, and her thigh rotted. Uh, then that was proof that she was guilty of adultery. It would have taken a miracle from God for that to happen, for her belly to swell up from drinking clean water with a little bit of dust from a clean tabernacle. Uh, for that to cause her belly to swell up and her thigh to rot, it would have taken a miracle from God. And so what is going on here? Is God saying, basically, if you suspect your wife of adultery, but you have no evidence, you need to just sit back and let God work a miracle before you accuse her of anything. Uh, God will let God reveal it to you rather than you going on and making the accusation. But I have a couple of questions for people that talk about how barbaric this is. First question is, how many times do you suppose that drinking this water actually caused a woman's belly to swell and her thigh to rot? And if they're a skeptic, they're going to have to say none. Because if they say, well, you know, it, it probably happened a lot. Well, that means that you believe God worked a bunch of miracles here, <laughs> causing all these, these women to have their belly to swell and their thigh to rot from this clean water. Um, so unless they're wanting to admit that God is working a miracle, then they have to say, well, it didn't happen. Okay, well, then the next thing comes into play, that uh, <clears throat> the punishment here, or the, that the lack of punishment if she went out and, and nothing happened. If her belly did not swell and her thigh did not rot, then she's declared completely innocent. There's no punishment. She's declared innocent. In fact, she isn't even the one that has to provide the offering. Her husband is the one that has to provide all the stuff for the offering uh, that's mentioned in this passage. And so her husband is actually out some of his wealth by <clears throat> providing for this offering because he suspected her of adultery. But she is completely innocent uh, in this matter from then on forward. He cannot bring any charges of adultery against her for this, this particular incident once this happens. And so therefore, and just and it, if the skeptic is looking at this and saying, well, obviously God didn't work a miracle here, then that means that every single woman that had this done to her was declared innocent and went on with her life uh, declared innocent, you know, with no ill effects from this, other than her husband maybe continuing to to be suspicious of her, which that was the situation beforehand. So there's no ill effect toward the woman at all. Uh, but it does prevent a husband from having a woman put to death just because he suspects her of adultery. He can't just say, well, I suspect that she is committing adultery, uh, therefore she needs to be put to death. It's, it's not like it was, or not like it is in, in Muslim countries under Sharia law. The husband just has to have suspicion. He doesn't have to prove it or anything. He can kill his wife in an honor killing any time that he thinks that she's uh, guilty of adultery. And that's supported by the law. This is very much against uh, that type of honor killing that you find in other religions. Uh, and then it's interesting to note 
This law is not called the law of adultery. It's called the law of jealousies. And God's not focusing here on the woman's adultery and how to deal with her adultery and, and how to punish her. There's no punishment given whatsoever for if the woman is found guilty, other than that her belly swells and her thigh rots, which is a punishment from God. There's no human punishment. It says that she's made a curse among her people, but that just means that everyone knows she's guilty of adultery. She's not put to death. The uh, punishment, if a woman is proven to be guilty of adultery, is that she's to be put to death. Leviticus 20.10, we looked at that before. That the man and the woman both are to be put to death. But here in verse 27, there is no death penalty if she's found to be guilty. Because there's no witnesses. There's no human punishment brought against her at all. So at worst, she gets this sickness brought on her by a miracle of God, which you know, she, if she was actually guilty of adultery, then she would deserve much worse than that. Uh, but that's it. There's not allowed to be any human punishment against her if this trial proves that she is guilty of adultery. Uh, but anyway, it's, it, the focus here is on the man and on his jealousy. And you can read in verse 31, After all this has happened, then shall the man be guiltless from the <coughs> And this woman shall bear her iniquity. So if it's proven that she is guilty, she bears her iniquity, and he is guiltless of his iniquity. What iniquity? There's no mention in here anywhere of the man's iniquity other than him being jealous of his wife without cause. And that is declared to be, in this passage, to be iniquity in the husband. So he should not be so suspicious of his wife that without any evidence whatsoever, he suspects her of uh, being unfaithful to him. He should treat his wife with such love and respect that he assumes her innocence unless there's evidence to the contrary. And uh, so that's what I think the, the passage is talking about here. And uh, there's a lot of skeptics out there that, that talk about how barbaric it is. But when you sit down and actually read the passage, it's, it's more like God is making a joke of the husbands that are jealous without cause. You know, okay, fine. You think that she's been unfaithful to you. Here, I'll give you a test. Go make her drink the water. It's perfectly clean. And if she gets sick from it, you'll know that I have uh, cursed her and that she is actually guilty. But you can't punish her after that. You still have to have her as your wife. Your wife. You can't divorce her. You can't put her to death. You're still stuck with her. You just then know from then on, yes, she was guilty of adultery. And your jealousy was properly found or well-founded. But that's it. And and if she doesn't get sick, then you're wrong. You're in iniquity. You should have never come in you know, and made these accusations in the first place. So it's, I look at it as uh, God sort of having a, a mocking rebuke toward husbands that are jealous without cause. Now, does a man have to give up everything he has? Uh, no, he just has to, to bring the offering. He pays uh, with the offering up in uh, verse number 15. Then the man shall bring his wife unto the priest, and he shall bring her offering for her, the tenth part of an ephah of barley meal uh, with no oil and no frankincense. So, all right, now another aspect of this that I've come across, in fact, just last week I had someone send me a video, or actually they didn't send it to me, they just posted it on Facebook and asked for help. 
with this video from a guy saying the Bible uh, supports abortion, and here's why the Bible supports abortion. And he went to this passage and said, this is God saying that if a woman has been unfaithful, the husband's to take her to the priest, and the priest gives her a potion so that she drinks it and has an abortion, and that, <laughs> that uh, kills the kid. And that's... That's the way I've seen a few skeptics take this. That's actually a common thing among uh, people that are trying to say that the Bible is in favor of abortion, that many of them turn to this passage. And to me, it makes no sense. There's nothing in this passage that indicates the woman was pregnant at the time that her husband was suspicious of her. Now, you do have in verse 28 the, the phrase, and shall conceive seed. And if the woman be not defiled, but be clean, then she shall be free and shall conceive seed. And so they point to this and say, see, she's pregnant, and if if she's not defiled and it's, if she's innocent of adultery, then um, she will be allowed to give birth to the child. But if she's guilty of adultery, then this potion the priest has given her will cause an abortion. Now, it's a very bad way to look at it because, first of all, the priest hasn't given her a potion. He's given her a glass of water. So there's nothing in a glass of water that's going to cause her to have an abortion. Uh, even if there was something in the dirt, it's just a little bit of dust. There's not likely to be anything in that dust, no matter what, uh, that would be strong enough to cause an abortion just from a little bit of dust being sprinkled on top of a glass of clean water. Uh, but the other thing is that the conceiving seed happens after the test of the drinking of the water. Conce conception is where the, the life begins. So it's not talking about a woman that is already pregnant at the time that she drinks the water. It's talking about after she has drunk this water and proven to be innocent, then <clears throat> the husband can go and conceive seed with his wife, knowing that she's been faithful to him. And so that's what it's talking about there. It's not talking about then the baby that was uh, suspected to be from some other man will be allowed to be born. That's, that's not what it's talking about at all. There's no baby at all at the time of the trial. Uh, afterwards, then she can conceive seed and uh, in her, be innocent and known to be innocent. Okay, so that's, that's the Old Testament law. Now, New Testament application of this, there is no direct application of this to Gentile believers because we don't have the same law, legal system that the Jews had, so we're not under that same system of civil law that they were under, so there's no direct application to us as a civil law. However, it does illustrate a very important principle that we do apply in our law in America, and that is the principle of being innocent until proven guilty. In this case, the accused woman is assumed to be innocent unless something happens to conclusively prove otherwise. So she is assumed to be innocent unless that little glass of water, that harmless glass of water, causes some miracle of God to take place in her body where she gets sick to the point of her belly swelling up and her thigh rotting. So unless that miracle took place from God, she is assumed to be innocent. And so that's a principle that we apply in our legal system, that you are innocent until proven guilty. You have to have conclusive proof of guilt in order for someone to be punished for a crime. Now, it doesn't have to be uh, direct evidence. It can be circumstantial evidence, but that circumstantial evidence has to be conclusive. 
so that a jury can declare beyond the shadow of doubt that, uh, or beyond reasonable doubt, that you are guilty of that crime. That's the same way it was in the Bible. And then the next thing that it illustrates here is that it's a demonstration of God's care about the reputations of women. So it's God didn't just care about uh, whether or not the woman was put to death. He could have just said, you know, the woman can't be put to death for uh, adultery without evidence. Uh, this it goes further. This is for a law of condemning the jealousy of the husband. Uh, so it's protecting the reputation of the woman. And if the husband's jealousy gets so much that you know, he's lashing out at her and he's suspicious of her and, and can't uh, trust her, then he can come and put it before God and God's most likely going to say, hey, she's innocent, you need to treat her as such. Uh, just like Jesus did with the, the woman brought to him who was even caught in the very act of adultery, but there was no witnesses there. There was no husband or there's no man there uh, to also be killed. So the whole thing was against the law. And he uh, absolved her of the crime because it was all being done outside of the rules of the law. And the same thing here. Uh, no evidence whatsoever, so she couldn't be put to death for adultery. So legally, she is to be innocent. And uh, <clears throat> but God still takes, God still presented this process so that He could restore that reputation of the wife to her husband uh, if it got to such a point. But anyway, that's that's the only application I see in the New Testament for us as believers. It, it's an illustration, and, and not the only one, but one of many illustrations. Uh, God having the policy of being innocent until proven guilty. Uh, and then it also, again, demonstrates God's care and protection of women uh, in their life and then also their reputations. Any comments or questions on this particular law? All right, we'll move on to the next one. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 25. This one should be very familiar to you. Not so much the verses that we're going to read, but the concept of the law itself is one that we are generally very familiar with. All right, so this law is the law on the law placing a limit on the number of stripes that a man can be given when he's being beaten for a crime. So it's a limitation on the number of stripes that are received as punishment for a crime when a man's being beaten for a crime. So it's, it's with a whip or with a rod or anything like that. It's only so many stripes that could be given. So Deuteronomy 25, start in verse number 1. If there be a controversy between men and they come unto judgment that the judges may judge them, then they shall justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. And it shall be, if the wicked man be worthy to be beaten, that the judges or that the judge shall call, cause him to lie down, and to be beaten before his face according to his fault by a certain number. Forty stripes may he give him, and not exceed, lest if he should exceed and beat him above these with many stripes, then thy brother should seem vile unto thee. And so you're very familiar with the. Principle that the Jews were limited to giving only 40 stripes uh, in any type of beating or any type of punishment of a criminal. 
it's referenced several times uh, throughout the Bible. You have Paul mentioning uh, that several times he received 40 stripes save one, meaning he received 39 lashes uh, multiple times when he was beaten. And he was only beaten for uh, preaching the gospel. Now, that passage where he talks about 40 stripes save one, and many people look at that and think see, the Jews had a limit of 39. They could not go to 40. Uh, they actually, the limit was 40, but the policy that they set up in order to prevent an accidental excess of that limit is they set up a policy of only giving 39, and that was the Jewish practice. They would go up to 39, and then they wouldn't go any further than 39, just in case they had miscounted and had actually already given 40, and they didn't want to accidentally go beyond that. Uh, but that's the command. They are forbidden from giving a man more than 40 stripes, in punishment for a crime. The purpose of it was to prevent the one being punished from being despised. And you see that at the end of verse number three. Uh, Lest if he should exceed and beat him above these with many stripes, then thy brother would should seem vile unto thee. And it's the idea that God didn't want the judges to administer punishment to the point of derision of the person that they're punishing. Uh, just beat him until you feel like he's received enough. Just beat him and beat him and beat him because you hate the guy. You know, God God didn't want that. He wanted there to be a limit to how far a man could be punished for a crime so that he was not uh, despised by the judge. And the judge couldn't just beat him out of derision. Uh, it could only beat him for the the particular crime, which plays into the next point, that they were also commanded to make the number of stripes fit the crime for which the man was being punished. And we see that in verse number two, it shall be if the wicked man be worthy to be beaten, that the judge shall cause him to lie down and to be beaten before his face according to his fault by a certain number. Okay, and so the judge had to look at the crime and he had to make the punishment, the number of lashes, fit the crime, fit the fault that the man had. And the judge had to announce what that number of stripes was going to be. He couldn't just say, we're going to punish you until you confess, or we're going to punish you until you're sorry for what you did. Right? There was a certain limit he had to place. He had to say, okay, for this crime, I think it's just for you to receive 10 stripes. And 10 stripes was all the person could receive, regardless of what type of attitude he displayed during those 10 stripes. So you couldn't just start at 10 stripes and then the judge say, wait a minute, he's not repentant enough. Obviously, we didn't beat him enough. So let's get a new ex or new uh, uh, guy in here to do the, the whipping and we'll have him beat him another 10 times to make sure that the guy gets the message. I couldn't do that. Once he receives the 10 stripes that the judge prescribed for him, that was it. He couldn't receive any more. So there is a limitation first in the maximum amount of stripes that could be given. And then God also said, you need to place a limit on the stripes that will fit the crime, and you need to place that limit before you see how the criminal responds to the punishment. So the punishment is not based on the response of the criminal. The punishment is based on the severity of the crime. And so that's, that's the law that was given in the Old Testament. You had to have a certain maximum number of stripes that was allowed. And then the stripes, the punishment, had to fit the crime 
and it had to be prescribed before it was administered. And I could not go beyond what was prescribed for that punishment. Okay, and then the New Testament application for this, again, there's no direct application of this to New Testament uh, Gentile believers uh, because we're not under the same legal system. The laws <coughs> requiring stripes for certain things uh, don't apply to us, so that doesn't directly apply to us. However, again, we have a foundational principle here that we have put into our laws and that uh, we can see as a universal principle uh, when we study our laws, study the laws of the Old Testament, study nature itself, we can see the principle that the punishment should fit the crime. You shouldn't have just arbitrarily decided punishments by the judge, uh, just whatever he wants to do and no limitations placed on it. The punishment should fit the crime. And then you also have another principle, and that is that punishment should not be cruel and unusual. That's the language we use in our laws is to prevent cruel and unusual punishment, and that's just the excessive uh, beating of someone just to teach them a lesson. That's That would be considered cruel and unusual punishment, and God set a limit, said, no, you cannot go beyond 40 stripes because you don't want to go into cruelty, which would be despising the person that you're beating and, and making him vile in your eyes. You don't want to be cruel against him. You just want to punish the crime, and that's it. And so God set a maximum limit for that. So that we can learn from that that we should pr prohibit cruel and unusual punishment as well and that we should require our laws and our judges to make the punishment fit the crime that has been committed. Right. Any comments or questions? We're not going to go into another one. So probably had enough time, but I didn't think we would go through these two that quickly. So we'll allow a little extra time. Did they specify in there what they use? You know, to the lashing the uh, no, there's places where the a rod is mentioned. There's also places where a whip is mentioned. And so I don't think that there is a specific requirement anywhere to use one or the other for particular crimes. But I know in, in Proverbs, for example, you have a rod mentioned for a fool's back and another place in the whip is mentioning for someone's back and so um, I don't think that there was a legal distinction between the two or a legal requirement for one or the other or anything else but again I haven't entirely gone through the whole Sefer HaMitzvah yet so <laughs> we may as we go through the series we may come across something about it any other comments all right, well, we will get out of here about uh, seven minutes early then. So. Uh, Russell, why don't you close us in prayer and we'll be dismissed. All right. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. 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 Thank you for this time to come together and study.